The following is a special presentation of the Game Before the Money. What began in 1936 with nine NFL team owners gathered in a crowded Ritz-Carlton hotel room in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, has since morphed into a national phenomenon with all the glitz and glamour of the Academy Awards. Recent NFL drafts have taken place in Nashville, Dallas, Cleveland, and now Las Vegas. The event often dominates primetime network television and even has its own logo. The NFL Draft has become a huge part of our sports culture. After its inception, every professional sport in America adopted the model. How did it come about? What's the backstory? What's the actual story? Listen as Upton Bell recounts the history of how his father, Philadelphia Eagles founder and owner and former NFL commissioner, Burt Bell, created the draft, the most important and original standard for the NFL, as well as all other major sports. Hi, everybody. I am author and oral historian Jackson Michael of The Game Before the Money. Upton Bell wanted to share with everyone the real story of the NFL draft. Upton's father, Burt Bell, invented the NFL draft. So Upton knows many stories about the early NFL drafts that no one else would know because these are stories from his own family. Furthermore, as a youngster, Upton went to training camps with his father and he met George Hallis all the way back in 1946. So Upton has all these stories that no one else would know because his father invented the NFL draft and later was commissioner of the NFL. But Upton also can share stories and insight from his own time in the NFL. He worked for the Baltimore Colts all through the 1960s, worked in their scouting department under head coach Don Shula. He later became director of player personnel, a role he held when the Colts won Super Bowl V. He later became general manager of the New England Patriots. No matter what you know about football, I can almost 100% guarantee that you're going to hear stories that you never knew before. And indeed, there's a great story at the end. You'll hear about a conversation that Upton had with Don Shula before the Dolphins drafted Dan Marino. But we'll get to that later. So we'll start, we'll, we'll talk about your dad. He founded the Philadelphia Eagles and what really kind of kick-started his idea for a draft was after he had had negotiations with a player from the University of Minnesota named Stan Kostka. I think the most important thing among many of the reasons that Burt Bell founded the NFL draft was basically, luckily enough, an owner was the one in Burt Bell who went to the owners to say, this is the only way to go. And the only reason he did, and maybe this never would have happened, is because he was an owner looking out not only for the league, but for his personal interests. So he gets on a train after a phone call with Stanley Koska, 
who was a big running back out of the University of Minnesota, get on the train, went all the way the hell out to Minnesota, sat down with this guy, and said to him, you know what, I'll, I'll offer you 3500 And he kind of, he didn't balk, but it, it appeared that there were other things on his mind, like how quickly could he get out of the room and call the Brooklyn Dodgers. And yes, there was a Brooklyn Dodgers in those days in the NFL and call them and say, this is the bid I got from Bell, so can you up the bid? Well, my father said, because he kind of read the player, remember, he was a coach, an owner, general manager, you know, you name it, and a former player in college. He said, I'll tell you what, let's make it 4000 So Koska still kind of hesitated. And then my father, finally, when he saw he was getting nowhere, got back on the train, came back, to Philadelphia, but on that train, you know, you you talk about St. Paul being hit by a lightning bolt on his way to another life, and basically it changed his whole life. He was heading to Damascus. In this case, I think a lightning bolt hit Burt Bell on that train, and he said, wait a minute, I'm a poor team, there are plenty of poor teams in this lake, we need to do something so the Stanley Koskis of the world aren't going to sign with Brooklyn or the New York Giants or the then Redskins or the Green Bay Packers or particularly Papa Bear and the Chicago Bears. He said there's got to be something or this league is going out of business. So he began to, on the train, and then when he got back to Philly, he began to formalize his presentation to the owners to say, we have to do something or we're not going to be in business. And that led to the 1935 league meetings in Pittsburgh at the Fort Pitt Hotel. Ironically, that's where he ended up working when he was the coach and equal partner of Art Rooney many years later with the Pittsburgh Steelers. But at that time, they were called the Pittsburgh Pirates. So what he did at the league meetings is he came in and he gave an impassioned speech and said, we're only as strong as our weakest link, and I am, and imagine being a confessor and saying, I am our weakest link. What he tried to do is appeal to Rooney because he and Rooney, number one, came into the league together. And also the person who was really the commissioner, the power in the league was George Hallis. If Papa Bear doesn't go for it and can't eventually convince Tim Mara of the powerful giants, the NFL, the league, and Burt Bell are all screwed. It ain't going to happen. So at that league meeting, he laid out so many things. One of the things that he didn't necessarily lay out, but was absolute fact, nine out of, I think, the last 14 NFL championships was either the Giants, the Packers, the Bears. Washington hadn't gotten in yet. But they dominated everything. So what about all the other poor stiffs that had no chance? The other thing that I want to point out, Michael, is, and this is aside as part of the overall picture, I'm sure he did his homework, as I did when I got into a, another league that failed, is that between the founding of the NFL in 1920, it wasn't originally called, as you know, the NFL, till 19. 19- 35, 
20 teams, maybe more, had failed. So he could see. He was a visionary. They might be at the end of their time. And, of course, Howis, who really was the original and the dominant with the Chicago Bears, the Monsters of the Midway, I think realized that because even in his biography, many years later in the 60s, he said it was a good idea. And you have to understand one thing about Howis. And I got to know Papa Bear when I first went to their training camp in 1946 and knew him all the way through my general managership with the Patriots is he was a total realist. He understood what it was like. He founded the Chicago Staleys and became the Bears. He knew how tough things were. And he knew that this might mean that he no longer would totally dominate, but he also knew what the hell am I going to do if I have no league to play in? So at that league meeting, he convinced Hallis, and Rooney was on board, but Hallis had to go to Tim Mara on uh, the powerful New York Giants to get him to go along with it. Well, in the end, he did, and it was by a nine-to-nothing vote that he got passed the most important legislation and pardon me if it seems like exaggeration, the most important legislation in the history of pro sports, because from that, what you got is the NBA, the NHL, and baseball all followed suit. Without a draft, I'm not sure any of those leagues would be playing today. And consider, you know, the facts. You know, Stan Koska signed for a $5,000 contract with the NFL Brooklyn Dodgers, and that was comparable to what Bronco Nagurski, one of the biggest stars in the NFL, was making. So if they're throwing out speculative money on players, such as Stan Koska, who only played one season, as it turned out, you're right, the league could go broke if it wasn't approved. I can tell you this, because of my experience in running teams, that it was going broke. Remember that also part of this was that many of the players, which we will get into, but many of the players in the first two or three drafts never signed in the NFL, like Jay Berlinger, who my father drafted and eventually traded to the Bears, that basically they looked at pro football as not a very good occupation and the money being offered even though it seemed like a lot to those owners is that that basically they can make more money in industry as Berwanger did and many others and they never signed in the NFL but the ones that did with free agency they could name their price and they could get into a bidding war and the top three or four teams could pay them imagine what it would be like today The NFL was still a very restrictive society. They put in eventually free agency, but the club still can counter-offer. The club can franchise you. The club can guarantee you a certain amount of money, but it isn't for the full contract. They, They still have ways to really screw the player. Although the player, like an Aaron Rodgers, can make $50, $60 million a year, which is ridiculous. But think way down the road, which is one thing that Burt Bell was so far ahead of his time, he saw the future and he didn't like it, is think today 
any one of the players, the ones that are coming up in the draft, or the ones that the Debo Samuel of the San Francisco 49ers says he wants out of San Francisco. Suppose there were no restrictions. He probably could command something like $100 million. <laughs> so that's, again, back to the genius of Bert Bell is that he saw what was coming. And that, in some ways, kind of set the sail for why he was such a great commissioner. And so the draft gets approved in that 1935 owners meeting and it gets set up before the 1936 NFL season. Talk about how your dad set up the draft, where it was located, what the media coverage was like, and kind of kind of what that first draft was like. Well, first and foremost, it was like if you were getting married and you invited 200 people to the wedding and nobody showed up. <laughs> and you're stuck with the bill, which is really in some ways what happened. The first draft was held on Broad Street in Philadelphia at my grandfather's, his father's hotel, the Ritz-Carlton. couple of reasons. One, because who the hell could afford a hotel? And two, they, they wanted to have it in a big city in a metropolitan area, figuring they get all the newspapers, who did not cover it. So for two days, February 9th and 10th, I believe it was, or 8th and 9th, in Philadelphia, the Ritz-Carlton, which was the number one hotel in Philly at that time, and many of the great celebrities stayed there. My grandfather, who was the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, was also one of the largest landowners in Philadelphia. And ironically, again, all of the what-ifs in this whole thing. Ironically, when he went to his father to get some money when he wanted to buy the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, renamed them the Eagles, which he did, his father said, not one penny, not one dime for professional football. He's told his son, college football is a game, and of course his father was second in seniority on the Water Camp Rules Committee. So college football was a big thing. Pro football was a sideshow. And so his father said, okay, have it here. And that's what they did. Remember, there were only, I believe, nine teams. And so they all gathered there up in his suite the night before, having drinks and discussing how they would do it. And they set it up with a blackboard and on the blackboard, originally it was only supposed to be five rounds. And then they decided later on to move it to nine rounds. And basically, when you think about it, when you think about today, the millions that are spent on scouting, all the TV coverage, the three-day event, this was done basically in two days. And also, when you look at it, there were no computers, there were no IQ tests. There were no going to colleges and visiting and having pro days at college. There wasn't the combine in Indianapolis. None of that. Basically, what it was was some magazines, some newspapers. Art Rooney said that he would check out the different guides for the colleges to see the names on there. They would make calls if they had friends with coaches. And that's how they did it. No video, no scouting reports. 
essentially no Street and Smith magazines, just who you knew, basically. And Rooney would say that they used to go down on the weekends and get the out-of-town newspapers to see who had scored a touchdown, let's say, at Duke or Illinois or, let's say, UCLA or something like that. That was it. So that was those two days there. No media came. There was a brief report, I think, in one of the Philadelphia papers, or two of them, uh, the following Monday. And then maybe two weeks later, people began to write a little bit about it. So again, it was a grand party. It was the beginning of time for the NFL and all the sports, and nobody came. Come to the stable, the only people that showed up were the wise men. That's how it really started out, and of course, again, irony and history collide. Burt Bell naturally had the worst team in the league, and he had the first choice, and took a player who was an All-American at the University of Chicago, Jay Burwanger, who coincidentally had just won the first ever Heisman Trophy Award. That's correct. Now, here's another little a footnote to history. Burt Bell served as a coach on John Heisman's coaching staff when Heisman was the coach at the University of Pennsylvania. So he knew Heisman. And the original name wasn't the Heisman Trophy. The original name was like the downtown AC or something like that in New York. It was the Heisman Trophy later on, but originally it was not. And Burwanger turned my father down. My father then traded his rights because he really needed players. And I don't know whether he could have afforded them anyway, traded his rights to the Bears. And even George Hallis couldn't sign them. So he was the first. And, of course, the most famous because in the first draft, everybody remembers who was taken number one. So he never played. And there were other people that didn't play. And so they went through those nine picks, each team. Just to go over a little bit of that draft for people, the second pick was Riley Smith, who did sign with the uh, Redskins for 250 a game, which was considerably less than Stan Costa's. And the third choice was Art Rooney's then-Pittsburgh Pirates, as you mentioned, and they drafted a guy named William Shakespeare. Out of Notre Dame. Out of Notre Dame, that's right. Now, um, Upton, were there any Hall of Famers picked in that first draft? Can you tell us? One of the things that I keep telling people about the luck of the draft, and even with all the computers, is with hardly any information, four Hall of Famers from that first draft. Four of them. One of them being Joe Steidahar. Tuffy Lehmans was another person. A lot, a lot of people probably didn't know these names, but you know, they, there were four of them. Four Hall of Famers. Wow. Now, was there anybody else picked in that draft that fans would know? Most famous of them all, a terrific player by the name of Bear Bryant was drafted, never played, and of course ended up becoming a legendary coach at Texas A&M and then Alabama. So you say to yourself, and people have asked me many times this, well, if four players that nobody knew except their names 
or from reports, maybe some of them saw them play, if Moore went to the Hall of Fame, why the hell are we wasting all this money on all the pro days, all the different scouting things year-round, all of these things on ESPN, the NFL Network, draft lists, IQ tests, videotapes, and everything else like that. How many drafts from the last 86 years, how many drafts has four Hall of Fame draftees? First of all, I can hear all of you Kentucky Wildcats fans adding that Bear Bryant did indeed coach at Kentucky as well. And yes, four Hall of Famers, that's an impressive number. Especially when you consider, you know, there were fewer teams. You know, another one of those players who goes to the Hall of Fame, Dan Fortman, was a really important part of the Bears winning championships. He was, and again, there were many individuals taken in the early years that were terrific players. The first guy who really was the big difference maker was drafted in the next year's draft in 1937 when now Washington, they had just moved from Boston, the Washington Redskins, they picked Sammy Baugh, correct, out of, oh. the, out of Texas Christian in 1937. Sammy Baugh became one of the biggest names in the NFL. And also, a lot of people might not know that he also was a big movie star. He made westerns. He and Red Grange both made movies. And then later on, Otto Graham made movies. The quarterback was always kind of the focal point of college and professional football. But then his kind of understudy successor also was a guy that my father drafted a couple of years later, and that was Davey O'Brien, who was the first player my father insured with Lloyds of London for $100,000 against injury. And... Ironically, Davey O'Brien actually quit, retired from the Eagles at the height of his career to join the FBI. He became the best pistol shot in America. And in 1959, Lamar Hunt wanted to form a new league. He sent Davey O'Brien, his friend, to meet with Burt Bell, his former employer, about how to go about with a new league. Again, history continues to repeat itself. Yeah, and that's something we're we're definitely going to have to go into in a future episode. And Davey O'Brien, like you alluded to, only played two seasons in the NFL, led the league in passing one of those seasons. And if it wasn't for a long pass by Sammy Baugh in the other year, he would have won the NFL passing title both years. He finished second in that other year. And so TCU having those two great quarterbacks, and your dad was fortunate to get one, and that definitely improved the visibility of the Philadelphia Eagles. You're right, and that was also a big story. Burt Bell insures his quarterback with Lloyds of London for $100,000. Now, the other thing is that Davey O'Brien was 5'7". Think about that today. You say that, you know, that, that's a small man. That's really a small man. How the hell could he play? And many years later, Washington drafts a player by the name of Eddie LeBaron, who was only like 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, so players could play in those days. You didn't have to be like you are today, 6'5". 
Even 6'2 is considered small. But the whole thing was that O'Brien was a tremendous player that quit because he wanted to go into the FBI. Now, if it were today, or even many years later, he wouldn't have quit. Although, again, he was he was the right-hand man of J. Edgar Hoover, who was legendary until everybody found out what Hoover was like. But look at it, then many years later, there was a deal that my father made with the Bears because Hallis knew that the Eagles didn't have the money. In fact, of the first three or four drafts, he only signed one or two players. Many of the players that Bert Bell drafted never signed with him. You have enough money. So one of the deals made, Hallis sent him a player who was really good for the Bears. And I don't know why Hallis did it. Uh, a guy by the name of Bill Hewitt, receiver and defensive back, the last player to play in the NFL without wearing a helmet. Ironically, here we are back to it again, because history keeps repeating itself, is that in 1971, I was Bill Hewitt's presenter at the Hall of Fame as he was being inducted as the last man never to wear a helmet. Wow, that's that's really amazing. And I think what we start to see as we talk about Davy O'Brien here, going back a little bit, and how that raised the Eagles' profile nationally, um, is you're starting to see some of the effects that the draft had for certain teams. You have Sammy Baugh, still one of the most recognized players in that franchise's history. You had Davy O'Brien. You had Bill Hewitt coming to the Eagles. These these are players that the Eagles wouldn't have had possibly otherwise without the draft and without the effects of the draft. And when do you think that things really started to settle in? And like you said, your dad wasn't able to sign some of his early picks, but now draft picks sign routinely. When did things kind of start to kind of settle in and you really see the effects of the draft taking well, place? Well, I, I, I think by the late 30s and into the early 40s now, you got to remember that there were four years taken out for the war. And here's another historical thing that many people don't know, and there have been books written about it, that during the, the Second World War, my father went to the owners. The NFL was going to close down. And by, I think, only one vote, he was be able to convince the owners not to close down the NFL during the Second World War. He warned them, he said, if you close down, you'll never open again. There's going to be a rival league on the horizon, which there was, the old All-America Conference, which he eventually got to merge with the NFL. But he stepped in again. He stepped in many times, but you began to see bigger and bigger names by the end of the late 30s into the early 40s, even though a lot of them either served in the Second World War or were coming back and played. Guys like later in the late 40s, guys like Concrete Charlie Bednarik, the last guy to play both ways in a championship game. You know, he as a teenager fought his way across Europe as a tail gunner and was actually in 20-some flights over Germany. So he had to delay his college. Sid Luckman, drafted by the Bears, who became the hallmark of those great Bear teams. Bill Osmansky, George McAfee, you name it, and the big names started to come in, and the draft became more and more important 
as a PR thing. I was sent when I did an interview about 10 years ago uh, for the NFL Network, is that many people think today, well, geez, it's great. The league is really moving the draft around. It never had been done before. I will read to you where the draft was held after Philadelphia. It was held in 37 in New York, 38 in Chicago, 39 in New York, 40 in Milwaukee, 41 in Washington, 42 to 44 in Chicago, 45 to 47 in New York, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Chicago. I mean, you're right down the list, right to the last year that my father lived, which was 1959, was at the Warwick Hotel in Philadelphia. So... People, I wish that they would look back or take the time uh, to really look at the history of, of the NFL. And it would beg the question, uh, all of the newcomers that say, all right, fine, look at the NFL now. They're so smart, they move it around. They always moved it around. It's just now, it's the, it's the gospel according to what ESPN and the NFL Network tell you. So, anyway... And another thing that the NFL draft kind of pioneered, and this is right after your dad took over as commissioner in 1946, was the 1947 NFL draft was a precursor to what today's NBA lottery pick is with the, with the bonus pick. In which the team that got the first overall pick was determined by putting all the team's names in a hat and picking out a team's name out of the hat. Can you kind of give us a, a rundown on, on the history of the bonus pick? And There's t- only one reason for it. Again, he was really smart about it. He saw the coming of the old All-America Conference. I call it old because it was eventually absorbed by the NFL when he made a deal with them. But he saw them coming. And their first year was, was 1946, right after the end of the war. And what he did not want, because he didn't want players jumping back and forth, he knew that they were in a fight. And so what he did is he invented the bonus pick. That way you got a bonus pick. Each team would have a shot at year after year after year until they finally cut it out. But the whole idea is you have the bonus pick, and then you had the lottery, you had the bonus pick, and then everybody still got their first choice. So you could be, let's say, the Philadelphia Eagles, the Pittsburgh Steelers, or the Bears, and you win the lottery that year, and you get the bonus pick plus your own choice. But everybody thought, well, what, why did they do it? It's a great idea. The original idea, like many ideas that he came up with, including sudden death, was... What was the reason for it? The reason was he wanted to keep as many first choices in the NFL instead of having them go to the All-America Conference. So if you're looking at it and you're saying, other than the Cleveland Browns in that, in that great conference or not-so-great conference, when you're looking at it, if you have a choice between the NFL and any other team except the Cleveland Browns, where are you going to go? You're going to go, in most cases, to the NFL. So why not load up the picks? Front load them. 
And it was a great thing because people wrote about it. You know, who's the bonus pick this year? As you and I have discussed, the, the most interesting bonus pick ever was a defensive back out of Colorado by the name of Gary Glick. The only defensive back to go first overall in the NFL draft so far. When I heard that name, I went like, really? Gary Glick? Years later, uh, near the end of his career, he came to the Colts and I got to know him. Terrific guy. Uh, and lasted a fairly long time in the league, but I never thought of him as a Hall of Fame player or, or a really, truly great player. But but again, <laughs> they were the wild and woolly days of the NFL where you're not looking at a lot of videotape. And that bonus pick, again, just to clarify, you know, the first, the very first selection of the draft was picked at random with the team's name in the in a hat is is the, the legend and and they pulled out what team would get the very first pick now you talked earlier about how in the 1936 original draft how the teams did such a great job without all the hoopla scouting the 1957 draft had Paul Horning as the bonus pick for the Packers then the Packers Picked Ron Kramer later in that first round, which is an incredible haul for them. And then you had Jim Brown, Jim Parker, uh, other Hall of Famers picked in that first round of the 1957 NFL Draft. And again, without very much scouting. Well, they began to get a little bit more people like Paul Brown, who looked at a lot of film, period, and was the father of really the father of modern of the modern pro game. That's why a guy like Bill Belichick, when he whenever they play Cleveland, will wear a hat, a fedora, dedicated to Paul Brown because he changed everything, including scouting, watching film, IQ tests, the forty yard dash, you name it. And uh, people were beginning then to look at more film and see who they were. I mean, I can remember on television watching Paul Horning play. And I knew about Jim Parker, who ended up with the Colts when I was there. Truly, even today, I would say one of the greatest offensive linemen I've ever seen. It began to get modernized by those standards. More scouts were beginning to visit college campuses. Uh, it was opened up to more and more, starting with, and a guy that I believe belongs in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, as uh, a guy by the name of Eddie Cotell. Uh, who in the in the late 40s uh, came up with a scouting system for the Rams. And if you look at the Rams drafts uh, from, like, the middle 40s to, like, let's say, the middle 50s or late 50s, the best drafts in football, more players got cut or traded from the Los Angeles Rams than any other team in football, including one that should be in the Hall of Fame or would have been in the Hall of Fame if, if he wasn't, I believe, murdered, Big Daddy Lipscomb. I mean, he never even went to college. But Eddie Cotell was the first person to go into the African-American schools, then called the black schools, and and got to know people like Eddie Robinson, the legendary coach of Grambling, and many of the other places, in particularly in the South. And he put together press clippings, uh, he put together film, he did everything. He was a really the father, as I said, 
of, of modern scouting. So people were beginning to really look at, at people. So the drafts uh, got better. And the other thing is that people knew, because, you know, the, the college game of the week, even though, unlike today, where you get eight or ten, too many of them, uh, people knew who Paul Horning was from Notre Dame. He was the Heisman Trophy winner on a bad Notre Dame team. Uh, but the, the, those names, uh, people knew, you know, they used to call Ron Kramer the beast. People knew who Ron Kramer was, and the drafts got better. Still not quite the look that you have today, but I keep going back and keep using the word as I did in a long article for The Guardian for today, is that basically I being a scout, ironically, I ended up, making my living for the Baltimore Colts in those days on something that my father founded. I never gave it much thought at the time, uh, but I ended up becoming the head scout of the Colts at a very, very young age. <clears throat> had a lot of luck. I, I hope to say that I think I knew what I was doing, but had a lot of luck with the draft, and, and uh, three or four of my players were some of the best of their era, and one, like Ted Hendricks, went to the Hall of Fame. But all of that said, I, I would have to say, Michael, that I still call it the great American crapshoot. Because if you study it from the very first draft in 1936 to today, if somebody is even near 50%, even near it, they're lucky. Now, there, there have been exceptions. I always considered another person that belongs to the Hall of Fame is Art Rooney Jr., Art Rooney Sr.'s oldest son. He and the Bears had the two best I've ever seen. He had in one draft four players that went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The Bears, I claim, and they didn't have a really great scouting system. But the Bears in the first round took two players that are two of the best of any era, Dick Butkus and Gail Sayers. And that was when I was just becoming a scout in the 60s. Those two drafts are probably the two best I've ever seen. The 1965 Bears draft and the 1974 Steelers draft, in which, as a free agent, they signed a fifth Hall of Famer in Donnie Schell. That's correct. That's correct. So you say to yourself, Donnie Shell was a free agent. If the draft was so damn perfect, why is Donnie Shell a free agent? And that's the great mystery of this whole thing. That's why I think people are fascinated today and great for ESPN, the NFL Network, for promoting it. And so you have all these draft nicks out there. Everybody has lists. My, my next door neighbor has draft lists that they have created. You know, he's like 24 years old because it is the eternal mystery that there's no answer. Nobody has the full answer. I've seen some of the biggest mistakes ever in the draft. And you could say, the same thing. Look at everybody adopted Burt Bell's idea in the end. So you have the NBA draft, which, as you point out, the early part is a lottery. 
baseball draft, the hockey draft. Every major sport has it. They didn't have it before the NFL had it. They all copied it. They all copied Burt Bell's idea. And yet with all of that, with it being able to save money, with it being able to control the player, there is not an answer. And that's what I love about the things about life that people are interested in are the great mysteries that will never be solved. You will never solve the mystery of what is a great football player. Only time has the answer, and I'm thinking back to when Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf were both coming out of college at the same time, and people were debating who would go number one. And then, of course, the famous 1983 draft where Elway goes number one, and Dan Marino goes at the end of the first round. The Marino story is really kind of legendary because basically he kept lasting, you know, everybody's saying, what's wrong with Marino? And uh, I think somebody had put it out there, enough people, maybe even the agents, had put it out there that maybe Marino was into drugs. I knew that he didn't do drugs. And, and the other thing was that people said he's difficult. They said, well, so was John Unitas. And Don Shula had called me. What's the problem with Marino? He said, there, there's stories out there that he did drugs. Or what is it? And said, uh, what the hell's wrong with this guy, Upton? You, you did his games on TV or on radio when Boston College played them. I said, take him. I said, I don't care if he's high every day of the week. I said, he's the best quarterback I've seen. Great arm, great ability to scramble if, if he had to, although he was a, a pocket passer. I said, he's everything that you're looking for. I said, if you want John Unitas at 6364, take Marino. Now, I'm not saying that he totally relied on what I said, but after I hung up the phone at the end of the first round, he took Marino. And I used to say to him every time I would see him or talk to him, I said, you owe me something. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that uh, Shula had called you during. Was that was that during the draft? Just, yeah, or was, was it during the draft? It was no, during. No, it was during the draft. It was yeah. during the first round. Yeah. Oh wow! But look at two here back. There's so many great stories. You could do book after book on the NFL draft. The Pittsburgh Steelers cut John Unitas. To me, still, he and Brady are the greatest quarterbacks of all time. They cut him. He played for $7 a week for the Bloomfield Rams outside of Pittsburgh. And we, lucky enough, assigned him, gave him a chance, and, of course, the rest is history. Uh, they also, the Steelers, had an opportunity to draft Marino, and their scouts said, ah, it's difficult, he's in our own backyard, he's a pain in the ass, this and that. They passed on two of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. And then, when Chuck Noll went there from Baltimore, where I was, he drafted Terry Bradshaw. So they missed on two Hall of Famers, and they got finally a Hall of Famer that led them to four championships. So, look at it. It is that mystery. But it is that fascination. And every league has it. And how many people know, except the people that are really historians on this, how many people know it was all due to Burt Bell? 